Ephesians 5, 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. No one needs to tell us that that we're witnessing the disintegration of the marriage, of marriage and the demise of the family as we have always known it. Many things have contributed to the, are contributing to the demise of, of the home or marriage, adultery, immorality, fornication, abortion, sterilization. All of these things are just strands in the card that is strangling uh, marriage. The modern humanist would say that's no big deal because we really don't need marriage as we have always known it, the family as we have always known it, that there is latitude in the modern society for non-marriage or open marriage. And so we're kind of groping about without any base of authority. And I think it's time, especially in the church, for us to stand for the divine pattern in marriage and in the home, for a standard of living in the family that brings happiness and blessing. If we don't have family, then all society goes down the tube because the family is the basic building block of all human society. Now there has to be a beginning place, a place to begin this uh, series, and I think it begins here with one's Christian faith. In order to know the divine pattern for the family or for marriage, one has to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you never know the divine pattern. If it's not Christian marriage, it cannot be everything that it was meant to be. For apart from Christ, there is no means of passing on meaningful communication. Now you may be thinking or asking to yourself, does that mean that if you're not a Christian, you cannot have a meaningful relationship in marriage? I know a lot of marriages that are not Christian marriages that have meaningful relationships. It is possible to have a meaningful relationship in marriage and not be a Christian. It is possible to a point to have a meaningful relationship and not be a Christian. But since God created man and woman, and since God invented marriage, and since God has give us, given us the manual by which it is to be lived out and worked out apart from a relationship vital and personal with the living God, marriage and the family cannot be all that it was meant to be. So the Beginning point is a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing is to be a believer. And so that's what Ephesians chapter one, chapters 1 through 3 are about, our position in Christ. Now there are some, of course, there are those who know the Lord that are not living according to His law and following His precepts. Why? Because they're not living the Spirit-filled life. And so he comes to Ephesians 5.18. And he says that every Christian possesses the Holy Spirit, but not every Christian is controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so you have marital problems and you have family problems within the Christian community. And in some marriages that are Christian marriages, some marriages of people that are Christians, they are slugging it out just as bad as the neighbor down the street who has never known the Lord. For a carnal Christian 
will have discard in the family, just like the discard he knows in his own heart and the discard he experiences between himself and God. And you can go to every marriage conference there is, but if you're not living the Spirit-controlled life, none of it really will matter. Now in verse 18 of Ephesians 5, he talks about the Spirit-filled life, and he tells us in the, in the verses following, there are three results of, of, the, of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. One is a personal result, so that there is, he says, songs we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord always. So the first result of the Spirit-filled life is a very personal result, that is, there is joy and happiness within him that results in a song. He, is, he has an upbeat attitude. The second result of the Spirit-filled life is a result toward God. And he said, always giving thanks to all for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God even the Father. So there is this attitude of gratitude to God and worship to Him. And so I thank these people for coming tonight, but really what we're doing is thanking God that He has gifted them and sent them here so that our gratitude is to God for that which He uses to bless our lives. And so the result of the Spirit-filled life is an attitude toward God that is characterized by thanksgiving and, and, and joy and worship. Then there is a result of the Spirit-filled life toward others. Toward others. It is the spirit of submission. And that's what he says in verse 21, being subject to one another, being submissive toward one another. So wars come because we want first place, we want our rights, we want the upper hand, we want our opinions. We want to lead the group and we push toward the top. But the Spirit-filled Christian does not push toward the top. He, he does not push for the top, he pushes for the bottom, strangely enough, subjecting himself to another. And that spirit of submission is found everywhere in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 6, this, that you be in subjection to one another. 1 Peter 2, 13 says that we are to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In the same book, chapter 5, verse 5, younger men, he said, be subject to your elders so that there is this, this attitude of submission that is the result of the Spirit-filled life. Now what we need to do at this point is to get a definition of submission. You hear it often, subject, what does it mean? It is a Greek word, a... It means to arrange, to get in order, so that as Christians... We rank ourselves under one another. And the whole mentality of the Spirit-filled Christian is that we relate to each other in a spirit of humility and submission. That's what I was driving at this morning in that unforgettable sermon on Philippians 2.4. It says, if, this, if you really want to be like Christ, be spirit, live a Spirit-filled life, then... Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who though being in the form of God did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became a servant in the form of a servant 
and was obedient even to the point of death. The whole mentality of the Christian spirit-filled is an attitude of humility and submission so that in our relationship to each other, we are to be submissive. Now, I hope you got that down and put that there in the, in the little black book. Now, watch this. In terms of structure, in terms of structure and function, there is to be authority and submission. In terms of structure and function, there is to be authority and submission. But in terms of interpersonal relationships, there is mutual submission. Now let me show you how that works. As the pastor of this church, there is certain authority that goes with that leadership. And there is certain submission on your part. So that in terms of structure and function in the church, there is authority and submission. My authority, your submission. But in terms of interpersonal relationships, you come to me with a problem or a burden, I submit to you and get under that burden with you. You come to me with a God-sent criticism. I'm not to reject you and to resist that because I am the leader of this church. I am to get under that criticism with submission so that there, in, in, in interpersonal relationships there is submission. In structure and function there is authority and submission. It goes, within, it goes in the home, it goes in government. Now it doesn't change the fact that we have authority and leadership roles with regard to function and structure. But that does not negate the fact that we're to live in mutual submission. Now watch this. What this text is about from Ephesians chapter 5, 21 through chapter 6, verse 9 is this. Write this down on the walls of your mind. It is mutual submission that the apostle is after in this text. Mutual submission. Now he says, he uses the family to illustrate it. Now he says, be subject to one another in verse 21. But in verse 22 he says, wives... And if you have a Bible like mine, be subject to your husband. Be subject is not there. It's an italics. It means it's not there in the original text. It was interjected there for clarity, picked up from verse 21. I think it's not there because he wants us to understand that there is a mutual submission through the family. Wives are submit to sub, be subject to, or to subject to their husbands. But in verse 25... The husband is to be subject to his wife. That is, there is no greater example of submission than dying for it. He says, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. There is no greater illustration of being submissive than the submission of death. Now that does not negate the fact that within structure and function, he is the leader and the authority and and. And in that structure, he is that, but mutually submissive. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6, the children are to be submissive to their parents. But in verse 4 of chapter 6, the parents are to be submissive to their children in the sense that they do not provoke them to anger. In verses 5 through 8, the, master, the slave is to be uh, subjected to his master... But the master is to be subject to the slaves in the sense that he does not treat them cruelly or evilly, with evil. So that Paul is talking about the whole sum of it. 
mutual submission. And even though there is authority and submission in the marriage relationship, there is beautiful mutuality of submission. Now let me give you some examples of that. I'm conscious of the time. Not as conscious as you are, but I am conscious of the time. I want to I take a look at a verse or two. The first is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you just flip there to that passage, that verse with me, keep your finger here on the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and the verse is 3. Now read this with me. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife. It means that the husband is to be submissive, subject to his wife. Then it says, also the wife to her husband. Mutuality of submission. Now the point I'm trying to establish, in case you hadn't gotten it yet, is that what Paul is after in this passage is mutuality of submission. To get rid of all that goofy stuff going around, that the wife is to obey the husband, all that stuff. My wife has never heard that verse. Now, verse 4. Verse 4 says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, you see that? And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. An illustration of mutuality of submission. Now, having established that, I want us to come to the, to the second aspect of, of the family or marriage, and that is the principle of authority and submission. The principle of authority and submission. Now, Galatians 3.28 says that, that um, there is no bond of free man, there is no Jew or Greek, there is no male or female. Now, I know there is, and you know there is, male and female, and you know there's a difference what does that mean when he says there is no male or female? It means that with regard to God, He makes no distinction with regard to equality. There is no distinction with regard to equality with Him. The male and the female, they're equal. You already you know, knew that. All right, now what, well, so what happens with regard to authority and submission? And He gives about five illustrations where authority and submission are to be found. You got, him, got your, your, your note sheet there. Put down first, in the Godhead. In the Godhead. Now, in that 1 Corinthian book, turn to chapter 11, verse 3. You got it? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. You know, that's not the right reference. And that has to be, you've got to find that to make this thing work. Oh, great. <laughs> Let me tell you what that verse says. It says, The head of every woman is the man. Where is that found? 11.3? Okay, why isn't it in my 11.3? <laughs> Ah, there it is. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. We get a little loose here, thank the Lord. 
The head of every, the, 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 Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, I know what you're saying. I thought God and Christ were the same. I thought they were equal. Well, they are. Christ is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. There is no difference. He said, I and the Father are one, and that word means that there is no difference. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. So how is it that the head of Christ is God? Well, when he uses that term, it is never in essence. It is never in relation to essence or nature. It is always in relation to function. Not in essence, not in nature, but in function. So that in the function of the Godhead, it was necessary for Christ to submit Himself to God. And that's what He did. In the function of the Godhead, it was necessary for Jesus to submit Himself to God. And that's what He did. Now that doesn't mean we don't think less of Christ because He did that. We think more highly of Him because He did it. Now, if somehow in the function, in the structure of marriage, the wife is to be under the headship of her husband, that does not mean that she is unequal with him or there is inequality. It means within the structure there. And that doesn't say that we're to think less of her. We're to think more highly of her when she accepts that position. Second place is in marriage. So, the same is true. The essence and the equality with regard to the person is, is the same. But the husband and the wife in the family take a function or a role or a, or a structure where the husband is the head of the wife. God has made the man stronger physically. She's capable, he's capable of harder physical labor to take the brunt of difficult circumstances. And the wife is tender and gentle to support her husband's strength. There's a third place this is to be found. That's in the government. In the government. Hang in there quick. We'll, we'll do it quickly. In the government we have authority and submission. The largest single element of how this is to be illustrated, this principle of our Lord, is in the nation. So you'll turn to Romans 13, and I'm sure that's right. Right, right reference. Romans 13. He says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have a and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now, within the government, there is authority and submission. Now, that doesn't mean there's a lot of folks that probably have positions of authority who you would not respect as a person, perhaps. Now, what do you do when you when you have people in authority in government that you can't respect, if you can't vote them out. 
You leave that up to God. Look at verse 4. It says, For it is a minister of God to you for good, but you do what is but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword. He does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God and an avenger. Watch. God is the avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. God will take care of this. So that within the governments you have authority and submission. Why? Because God knows that a society that is not based on authority and submission is anarchy. If you have a society that is not based upon the function and the structure of authority and submission, what you have is anarchy in that society. God knows that. Then there is the smallest unit where this is illustrated. It's in the family. Can't have an anarchy in the family. Um, I had a, I've had teenage kids growing up, you know. My boy was 15, 6 foot tall, 170 pounds of idiocy, you know, as a teenager. And, and he, he wanted to be, the, uh, you, you can't have anarchy if there's no one responsible for discipline and wage earning, controlling behavior and giving direction, then that family is chaos. That's a, that's a fourth illustration. The, the final one is in the church. Now this is interesting. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 11. We'll go through 14. All right. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. He's talking about within the church. And that's in that interesting. That but to remain quiet. This is why he said, For Adam was first created, then Eve. And what that happened in the Jewish culture, Jewish economy, um, the, first, the, the, the first one born was the one who had authority. And there was Adam, he was before Eve. There's a second reason, it was this. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. He's not saying because Adam uh, sinned in the garden, she's getting punished. It means that she was vulnerable. She was vulnerable. Now what's this interesting statement, verse 15? It says, But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love. I believe the King James has it that the women will be saved through the bearing of children. Now let me tell you what that means. It means that the woman will be saved from a second-class citizenship by childbearing. Let me tell you what he's talking about. There is a special relationship that goes on between a child and, and, and his mother or her mother because she has him to, to hold him and to nurture him. To, she gave him birth, and there is a special relationship. You don't believe that. You watch you watched the football game this fall, and they'll do this pan on the, on the sideline, and there were these big old humongous football players, these gorillas, 
And, and when the camera comes on them, what do they say? They say, hi, Mom. You ever notice that? It's never, hi, Dad. It's, it's hi, Mom. Because there is a special relationship that, that exists about there. Now, what he's saying is this, that in the, in the family, in the church, the woman is to accept the position of submission to authority, but she's not going to be you know, left out as a second-class citizen because God has so arranged it through childbirth that she has a special relationship with her children. Now, kind of wind this up. Let me say something here. Paul is saying to these people in this Ephesian letter, I'm not telling you, I'm, just, I'm not reminding you of something that you know. He said, I'm telling you something brand new and revolutionary. Let me tell you what marriage was like when Paul wrote these words. Marriage to the Jew, to the, to the Jew, women were servants. In fact, a Jewish man would get up in the morning and pray, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Amen. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses said that a husband, if a husband found uncleanness in his wife, he could give her a divorce. Now, what did that mean, uncleanness? Some of the rabbis said it meant adultery. So that the, the basis of giving a divorce was adultery. But some other rabbis came along and said, well, uncleanness could mean a lot of things. It could mean, you know, not keeping a good house, or it could mean she wasn't pretty. So you had two schools of thought. One said you could divorce your wife if she was guilty of adultery. The other said you could divorce her for just about anything you wanted to. Now guess which one was the most popular? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, hurt that you don't take a, it doesn't take a nuclear physicist to figure out which one it was the most popular. So in Paul's day, by the time Paul got there, the Jews were divorcing their wives on whim. But the Greeks were worse. In the Greek world, there wasn't a legal procedure for divorce because it wasn't necessary. Wives only cleaned the house and had legitimate children. Demosthenes, an Athenian orator and statesman, said, We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. And we have wives for the person, purpose of having children legitimately and being faithful guardians of our household affairs. And because the Greeks find, Greek men found their pleasure outside of marriage, fornication and prostitution were rampant. And according to historians, the Athenian society was dominated by, listen to this, homosexuality, lesbianism, and sexual abuse of children. Does that sound familiar? And the Romans were worse than the Greeks and the Jews. Divorce was not the exception, but the norm. Jerome, an ancient writer, tells of one Roman woman who had married her 23rd husband, and she was his 21st wife. Marriage in Rome became more, nothing more than legalized prostitution. So in other words, you could get married when you found somebody you wanted to, stay until you got tired of her, dump her and marry somebody else. And in Rome, rampant was... Divorce, immorality, and fornication. Now, the Apostle Paul said, now in the, on the basis of that, I'm giving you a revolutionary concept of how you're to live your life and how you're to be married and how you're to have a family. It is revolutionary and it's wonderful. 
That within marriage there is this mutuality of trust, but with regard to, with regard to structure and function there is authority and submission. And he said, that's the way I want you to live. You've never heard anything like that, but I want you to show to the world that you're going to have a different kind of marriage than what the world is used to. One last thought, please. I need to end this on a positive note. Over in the book of Song of Solomon, turn to that if you can find it. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Now watch this. The New Testament gives us the principles of the Christian faith. The Old Testament gives us what? The pictures of the Christian faith. And the book of Song of Solomon is a beautiful picture of the right right marriage relationship. You're going to see in the book of Song of Solomon, you can see there this authority and submission recognized but this mutuality of trust and, submission, and mutual submission is beautiful there. As a matter of fact, this authority and submission is so couched in love, you can't even recognize it. Now, the Song of Solomon, the story of the Song of Solomon is the story of a king married to the Shulamite woman. And oh, this is kind of PG now. PG-13 as a matter of fact, but it is in the Bible, so I guess it's all right to talk about it. But this, this woman loves this man. She's crazy about him. So in chapter 2, I want to show you something. She is wild over this guy. She thinks he's something special. She is so in love with him. In verse 3, look at chapter 2, verse 3. She says, he's like an apple tree among the trees of the forest. So is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. In verse 3, he is her protector. In verse 4, he is her provider. He brought me to this banquet hall, she said. He provides. See how she sees her husband? Verse 4 says, his banner over me is love. A banner over somebody was a public announcement. Now watch this. She's saying, he loves me and he wants everybody to know it. He's put a banner over me. His banner over me is love so that everybody in town, all the guys down at the coffee shop, all he talks about is me. Everybody down at the domino, all they know, he loves me. I mean, you get a wife like that, she's excited. His banner over me is love. He's her provider. Verse 5, he is her sustainer. Verse 6, He is her security. You're reading it, I hope. Verses 10 through 15, He is her leader and her initiator. And there is no oppression or dictatorial spirit in this passage at all. There is this mutuality of love and submission. And He takes His role as her leader and she understands that. Look at that marvelous 10th verse. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. You might write a song about this. Well, you know, this, you might write one of these. Rise, my darling. And, and there's this mutuality there. Come along with me, honey. Okay, yeah, all right. And they're really in love. I want you to turn to chapter 5 now, verses 10 through 16. And i tell you what, she likes this guy. I'm going to show you how she likes him. This is what she says about him. She said, my husband, my beloved, is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of, oh, I love this guy. His hair is black as raven. 
I don't know how he could have a gold head. I was getting all excited about being blonde. And then he said, he said, there's a gold head and black locks. He was something else. His eyes were like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. They just lying there, boy. Those eyes like pools of, you know, lying in milk. Dark pupils, white, you know, white like milk. You don't have any red spots, you know, in his eyes. He said, his cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. Just love to kiss him, she said. His hands are rods of gold set with burl. Look here, his abdomen is carved ivory. I mean, when he kind of sucks it in, he just ripples. Say, how are you doing, guys? I mean, yeah. How are you fitting in there? I mean, his, his stomach is just, he rolls of muscle. And this guy is something else. And he says, verse 16, his mouth is full of sweetness. He's never crude to me. He just says the sweetest things. Isn't this great? Here's this man and wife just head over heels in love. And you'd think there'd be no problems, but there's a problem. Go back to the first verse of chapter 6, chapter 5. First verse of chapter 5. Let me tell you what the problem was. He had, she had a little problem there one time, one night, with regard to submission. He comes home late at night. He has his air miss on. Believe me, trust me, it's there. She, in fact, he, he was so greased down with perfume. She, when she touched the doorknob, it was oily. I mean, he was really... He's, his, his heart is full of love for her. He comes home at night and the door's locked. And uh, what it says in the, you know, in the, in the margins, Tidwell paraphrase is, not tonight. And he knocks on the door, and she doesn't come to the door. So he leaves. Verse 4 of chapter 5, she felt sorry for her lack of submission. So she got up, verses 5 through 6, and went to the door, and he was gone. And she panicked. She felt bad. She ran to find him, couldn't find him, thought maybe he's out in the garden. She goes out in the garden, and there he is. Verses 5 through 7. When she got to the garden, instead of him scolding and saying, Where were you? Why'd you let me in? What he does is, mutual submission now, what he does is, he begins to tell her the same things he told her on his wedding night. Oh, what a story. Mutuality of submission in interpersonal relationships with regard to structure and function, authority and submission. Now, there are two important things you need to get. One, we are to mutually submit to each other. Second, functionally, functionally, we must have authority and submission in the marriage. That's the foundation of this sermon, this series that we begin. I hope it's kind of stirred a little interest. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this night to study your word, to listen to this marvelous music, to understand that there is to be something unique and special about the relationship of marriage and the family. Thank you for your word, I pray, that you'll guide us in it for Jesus' sake. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless you.